Part of being human is to make decisions. Corey and I have been, actually, we just finished uh, season four of, and the finale of the show Rectify. Has anyone seen Rectify? Oh, you're missing out. But anyway, Rectify is produced by Sundance TV, and it follows the story of a guy named Daniel Holden. I'm not giving anything away. This is day one of the show, episode one. You find out that Daniel Holden has been uh, on death row in Georgia's penitentiary um, prison system, uh, and he's a fictitious character who went onto death row at age 19 for a crime that maybe he did or didn't commit. Uh, 20 years later, after serving 20 years on death row, new DNA evidence comes to light that exonerates him, and the, 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 the trial's thrown out, and he's able to get out of prison, and you imagine that this immense freedom and justice uh, would accompany just this feeling of release, but the show does a great job at showing the complexity of human relationships. The last time Daniel was free, he was just a teenager, a 19-year-old. The world was a completely different place. For 20 years of his life, basic decisions like what to eat and what to wear and when to get up and when to go to bed, all of these decisions were made for him. And all of a sudden, he's thrust into this world of choices, not only choices that he's never had to make before, but choices he's never had to see before. Being part of the human family means making decisions. And for Daniel, the daily challenge of new freedom is dealing with the overwhelming flood of choices that present decisions for him that he has to make. Now, to my knowledge, none of you that I know of have been incarcerated for 20 years or been out of touch with humanity for 20 years, but you still know a thing or two about how hard it can be to make decisions when life gets overwhelmingly stressful because of the decisions that we've made. It can feel overwhelming to decide what to have for dinner, let alone uh, the big questions of life like career and relationships and finances and calling. And sometimes it's tempting to look at other people and to assume that they have it all together or that they have an easier choice of making decisions. It might even be tempting to, to think that way about Jesus. Like you don't get the sense that Jesus had to worry about what to wear each day or whether or not he should buy a house or rent a house. And it's doubtful that Jesus was too concerned about his retirement plan or, or whether or not he had enough life insurance. After all, he had a clear calling on his life. He didn't have to make a decision about what to be when he grew up. Let me listen to his mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Dang, that's awesome. What an amazing calling. Sure figures, and it sure seems like Jesus has it figured out, like what he's got to do and what he doesn't need to make decisions on. But don't be fooled, because of course we know as soon as Jesus proclaimed that mission statement in Luke chapter 4, he's almost immediately confronted with opposition. People did not like how he was living out his mission statement. The religious leaders were upset at who Jesus hung out with. And the crowds were upset that Jesus didn't hang out with them longer. He had to go other places and bring his good news to other people. 
Moments earlier, Candace read about the controversy Jesus faced over healing on the Sabbath. And it seems that all Jesus' decisions of where to teach and how to teach and who to heal and, and when to heal all had consequences for him. And it became clear to Jesus that at this rate, he was not going to be in business much longer. These leaders meant to kill him. So what should he do? What decision should he make about where to go from here? Well, we're going to find out part of the answer to that question in our text tonight. I'd invite you to stand if you're able as uh, we read Luke 6. We're just going to read 12 through 16 tonight. It was at this time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose twelve of them, whom he also named as apostles, Simon, who he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. It's the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You heard that story before? Anyone? Yeah. Heard that text? It's in the other synoptic gospels as well, in different versions. Jesus' calling of the twelve disciples. And in this story, I, in approaching the text this week, and maybe you too, take it for granted that, that Jesus' big decision in the text uh, was deciding which of the 12 disciples, or which 12 of all of his disciples he was going to choose from this larger crowd. But as I dug into it and thought about it a little bit more, that information isn't necessarily evident from the text. Listen with new ears to verses 11 and then verse 12. So the end of what Candace read and the beginning of what I just read. But they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. It was at this time he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. Jesus' ministry was met with rage-filled resistance yet again. And this caused him to go away and to be with the Father on an overnight prayer excursion on the mountaintop. Without any other information then, what the text implies is that Jesus was in prayer with the Father, and he had actually three things that came up. First, came up the idea to pull in a closer group of disciples. It was in prayer that he got the idea to choose 12 out of the many in the first place. It was in prayer. We don't even know that he had that idea before he went into prayer. He had hundreds of disciples, the text tells us at different times. People, there were the crowds, and then there were the disciples. And that night, Jesus decided to pick an intimate group out of the crowd of disciples. The second thing is that his time of prayer with the Father revealed the idea not just of choosing a smaller group of disciples, but of 12 disciples which is a a theologically rich distinction since there were, of course, 12 tribes of Israel. And there's a whole lot of meaning there that we're not going to talk about tonight. And third, Jesus came down from the mountain after his night of prayer with the Father and chose not just an intimate group of disciples and not just 12 
disciples, but those particular 12 disciples. How did he come to make this decision? I want you to hold that thought. Before we look deeper into how Jesus makes a decision, I want to acknowledge the world you and I live in uh, and how our world, our culture here in the 21st century West typically makes decisions. One of the ways that we deal with problems and big decisions in our lives is to look to experts. There's experts for everything. We live in a, in a unique um, age of, of specialization, and one of the ways that this plays out, just being in the stage of life I'm at, is I see it in kids' sports, and I've talked to, you know, Ben and Tommy and some other coaches in our uh, middle and, and high schools, and, and they've seen this too, um, that, you know, when I was a sixth grader, I played baseball and soccer, and I wrestled, and then on weekends, I played flag football with my friends, and even dabbled in skateboarding, had the bangs and everything. Yeah. Nowadays, <laughs> Even though coaches say they encourage kids to be well-rounded and play multiple sports, the reality is that, that the kids that get on the field or get the playing time are the kids that specialize, that play one sport most of the year, they go to the special camps, they might have a personal trainer. It's ridiculous. Like, it's crazy. And the same is true for our professions and our trades, you know, almost gone are the days when you get the picture of the doctor with the black bag who comes to your house and kind of knows a little bit about everything. Like nowadays, that's only for veterinarians. I was talking to Tim Erfel, his dad's a vet, and he kind of has to know all the breeds of animals, you know, and kind of just figures it out. But, but today, there's, there's specialists. There's, um, there's nearly a specialty in medicine for every single kind of ailment you can think of. And, and you know, that, I'm not complaining. Like, that can be a really good thing if you're dealing with aggressive forms of cancer. Like, I want the best oncologist in the world. And thank goodness a lot of them are in Seattle. Woo! Um, or if you're dealing with some rare autoimmune deficiency deal, you, you want the best specialist. But in all of our specialization, I think we have to admit that there are some losses as well. Uh, the cardiologist prescribes one medicine for blood pressure, but the general doc prescribes another for something different. And sure, both prescriptions are supposed to be on the chart in cyberspace, but people are people, and they miss things, and you contraindicate, and who suffers but the patient, because people aren't talking together. I'm sure that never happens, right? The problem I'm describing with sports and with medicine are just two examples of the fact that with our specialization and expertise— we're also more and more distant from each other. We've lost the importance of being well-rounded, being multidisciplinary, of being wise about life rather than specialized about one thing. If Jesus were seeking advice from religious experts about his dilemma of being, you know, uh, meeting with this resistance, they may have told him, Jesus, you need to quit making enemies of the priests and the Pharisees. You should do an interfaith session and admit that your way is just one of many ways of doing religion. Maybe if Jesus saw a PR expert, they might say, Jesus, you need to soften your message. You're making a lot of people mad. You need to add some stuff about how to make Israel great again. Oh, and you have to, you've got to stop hanging out with those sinners and Gentiles. And if Jesus saw a security expert, they might say, Jesus, you're in danger from every angle. You need to cut your public appearances way back, 
We'll give you some secret service guys to guard you, but your days of public preaching are about over. Maybe you could write a book, and we'll get you on a book tour and get the book out there, but you personally, uh, it's just not safe. So don't get me wrong. Experts have their place, but there are, uh, are there any experts out there who see the big picture? Are there any who truly have the whole perspective on life? Another way that the world tells us we ought to make decisions is through our emotions. And this is usually through slogans or represented by slogans like follow your heart or chase your passions. Just like appealing to experts, paying attention to your passions is an important part of being a human being. The problem is that our hearts and our minds are corrupted by sin. That's just what the Bible says. And that's what my experience is with myself. The longer I go in my life seeking after Jesus, the more suspect I am becoming of my passions. My ulterior motivations are surprisingly self-centered and selfish. There's a great satire on this subject by the Babylon Bee, which is just hilarious. You've got you've to go online and check out the Babylon Bee. Okay, but anyway, the, the title of this article is Everything Local Man Feels Led to Do, He Coincidentally Likes Already. Wara, Indiana, Don Farmer, 43, reported Tuesday that he was recently led by God towards several things he really, really likes. And in fact, as a general rule, everything he feels spiritually moved to do coincidentally, he enjoys very much. For instance, last week, Farmer was considering whether he should go to the men's golf outing or volunteer at the city food pantry. When he says, miraculously, he just knew what to do. You could say I really just felt led to lend my support to the church event, Farmer told reporters. It would have been great to serve as a volunteer at the food pantry, but I had to say, here I am, Lord, send me even to the ends of the fairways. Plus, I recently purchased a new driver, which I took as a sign from God that I was supposed to do the golf thing. He muses, it isn't easy listening for that still small voice that just so happens to send me to do the the things I already want to do. Would I like to volunteer for the house building project? Sure, but what can I do if the Spirit leads me to come alongside Frank in the fellowship night that the guys are doing? Yes, we should absolutely pay attention to our passions and our feelings, but we should also question them with a certain sobriety and suspicion and caution. The prophets warn us over and over again that our hearts are duplicitous and not to be trusted by themselves. A third way our culture encourages us to make decisions is through popular opinion. Sometimes this is mixed with an appeal to experts like nine out of ten dentists recommend such and such a toothpaste. Yeah, you should try being married to a dental hygienist. Like, yeah, what experts? Like, nine out of ten people that they chose from this selected pool, right? I would never recommend that junk. That's what I get to listen to. But most often this popular vote kind of thing plays out in social media, which is a big one right now. There's so many decisions to be made out there that we're tempted to just see what other people are are thinking about things uh, and fail to do the work it really takes to have an informed opinion. Uh, Critical thinking is hard. How many times have we seen someone on Facebook post something like, what book should I read next? Go. What is the best daycare out there? Go. 
you know, and you just, and you, you, look at, you look at the list of stuff, and, well, I sort of trust this person more than that one, but the end is kind of like, ah, oh, the majority kind of is leading me this way or that way. I'll give it a try. Here's the problem with stuff like that. What is, what is the criteria of people on social media? What, what stock do they really have in the conversation? What is their source of information? And what if they haven't thought it through well enough, even though you want to believe that they're thoughtful, intelligent people? Those are just trivial, trivial examples. I, I've done that before and got good book recommendations, by the way. That's not a bad thing to do. <clears throat> but what about larger issues? What about issues like seeking the opinions of others on social media uh, about you know, decisions like race, what we think about race and politics and sexuality and bioethics? What about those things? And I, I'm sure it seems like, oh, so-and-so is so well-read, or man, that article they posted was pretty convincing, although I haven't read anything else. Oh, wow, that's a good point. I haven't heard the counterpoint because most of my friends on Facebook think just like me. And what happens when popular opinion is that it, it can so quickly become an echo chamber where people we read and follow are sorted by algorithms, by computers that basically ensure we hear what we want to hear, or we hear the exact opposite, nothing in between, so that it steals and galvanizes our stance against that other thing. What we have to remember is that even though we love our friends and our family and our neighbors, they're fallen too. And in the end, popular opinion can't be our main source of authority. And I bet you no one here would say it's your main source of authority. Then what is? What do we do? A great place to start, of course, you know where I'm going, is to look at what Jesus did in this passage. Put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Imagine you've come, an agent of God, to proclaim the good news of God, and the pillars of society you live in, the police, the city council, the prominent business owners, the clergy, they're all against you. Think of the crushing stress that that might place on you. What would you do? How would you handle it? How would you decide what to do next with your calling? It's counterintuitive to do what Jesus did, to stay up all night and not be productive, but pray. Most of the voices in our culture might be screaming otherwise, get your sleep, you're going to need it, get practical, prepare for action, rally people to your cause. But Jesus waits. He waits on God. All night he waits on God in prayer. And he comes up with a brilliant answer to his situation. And the answer is godly. It isn't a way to get Jesus away from the opposition. It's a way to have Jesus' message and his kingdom values passed down generation to generation. It's discipleship. What expert would have suggested gathering those 12 disciples? What PR person would have put boisterous Peter together with doubting Thomas or Simon the resistant zealot together with Matthew from the empire? The leadership experts would have told Jesus, team chemistry is really important and these 12 guys have no chemistry. The only one that would have seen it is Pete Carroll because he can just do stuff like that with crazy guys, but like nobody else would have seen it. Thank you, Hello. So the question is, is Jesus' model 
is Jesus our model for making decisions? Be very careful here. I want to say yes and no. Yes and no. Yes, we should pray. Yes, we should pray. What good news, by the way, that we have a Father who hears and answers prayer. A Father in heaven that actually cares what job you take, what spouse you marry, or whether you marry at all. What a grace that our God speaks to us about where we live and how we spend our money and our involvement in church. So we should pray. That's a good idea. And i got to confess, on a lot of decisions, it's tempting to go to those experts first, or popular opinion first, or pay attention to my feelings first, and then just like that dude in the Babylon Bee, kind of tack on, I think God's calling me here. Right, God? And I give him about a one-second shot up. Yep, I still feel the same. Going to go do it. Right? I, I, you know, looking out of this crowd, I doubt there's many people who would disagree that prayer is an important piece. But does it really inform the big decisions? I think that's, that's one of the things we need to learn here. But I also want to say this. You and I cannot make decisions exactly like Jesus did in this passage. Jesus presents us with a partial model. The part we mimic in this passage is the prayer part. We should pull away and pray privately. We should submit all of the good God gifts, uh, good gifts that God has given us in decision-making. So here are some good things that he's given us that we should rely upon. Scripture, reason, experts, opinions, emotion, imagination. We take all of those good things, and in prayer, we submit them to God. We say, will you check this out for me? Because I'm, I, I, it feels good, it seems right, but I just want to, you're God, and I, I recognize my perspective is skewed. Would you, that's what you do in prayer. We give God the right to affirm, correct, or contradict our other sources of information, okay? So in that part, we mimic what Jesus does. But besides private prayer, uh, like Jesus did, the early church also practiced communal prayer over and over again. Lots of times in Acts, in, in the, the Timothy letters as well. Why? Because we are not Jesus. His heart was not corrupt. His mind was not fallen. And his companions in the Gospels did not yet have the Holy Spirit. He could go do it by himself. The early church knew that they had the Holy Spirit, but they also knew that their hearts and minds were corrupt and fallen still. They knew that their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ had the Holy Spirit, but they were keenly aware that sin was still an agent uh, working against them. Uh, I mean, if there's any doubt in that, look at the letter to the 1 Corinthians, look at Galatians, look at most of the letters in the New Testament, and you've got this crazy mixture of people filled with the Spirit and Paul calling them to be who, who they are in Christ, and yet the reality is that we're not fully mature yet. And so we should expect God to speak, but we cautiously and faithfully listen to all the sources that God makes speak through, not least of which is Christian community. I was going to say something that's obvious, but it takes great humility and courage to entrust a decision to others and actually listen to their advice. I'd be rich if I had $5 for every time I heard someone announce to me hey, I'm getting married. 
Hey, um, I'm getting a divorce. Hey, by the way, I'm moving. I just want to let you know I switched jobs. I'm buying a vacation home. Wow, how did you come to that decision? Well, I, I prayed about it. I mean, I guess, I mean, there's a good deal came up, or, or our marriage was bad a long time ago, and what, did you talk to any? Ah, no, it's, it, it's irreconcilable now. And, and, and it's this private, we pull away, we don't like to, to share the burden with other people and bring community in to pray about it. And we, we basically live life as though we're, we're nuclear and by ourselves, even though we come to church, and then we wonder why there's not more abundance in life, why there's not more real community. God is not always going to stop you from doing what you want to do. That's a little bit terrifying to me. But your friends just might. God is always trying to get you to a place where you will His will. But He respects you too much to control you. And that's where real Christian community can come alongside and speak into our lives. Think about how absolutely countercultural that is. That kind of bothers me even in just saying it. It's against every fiber in my body. That's against the American dream, darn it. And it challenges our most sinful core part of us, our independence. And yet, that's discipleship. You know, I don't live for myself. My actions affect you. My actions reflect on who Jesus is, and so do yours. So we should make good use of Scripture and reason and, and, and emotions and experts and arts and imagination. We should make good use of the godly opinions of others, but sometimes all of those sources get diluted. And sometimes God graciously leads us in a different direction. Here's an example. Corey and I were living in Marin County, California from 1998 to 2004. And in 2002, we finally hit a spot after a few years of marriage where we thought we'd be able to settle down and have a family. For the first time in five years, we were both working full-time. Corey as a dental hygienist, me as an associate pastor, we had both had full-time pay and full-time benefits. We're double covered even. It's like, whoo, this is awesome. We had no kids yet. We would go out to sushi in San Francisco on Friday night because we could. We were blessed in every sense of the term. And back then, the real estate market was on the rise, and there was no ceiling in sight. And we had our eye on a condo in a nice part of town that was increasingly growing in value. Our real estate connections, the experts we knew, said it was a sure thing. Get in now. Our Christian friends prayed and didn't sense any resistance, but later they admitted that they just loved the idea of us staying around. Emotionally, we were all in, and after uh, living there uh, six years, we finally were beginning to feel comfortable in the, that community as transplants from Washington State. We could imagine using our new home as a center of hospitality. We would daydream about it. What could go wrong? But we were trying to be faithful to God, and so before pulling the trigger on this big decision, we decided to pray on it, and so we took a weekend. We took a Saturday um, took the whole day, and we were separate, and we prayed, and then on Sunday, we came back together to talk about it. It was May or June of 2004, and as soon as we got together on Sunday after our day apart, 
we could see it in each other's eyes. God had spoken to us however God speaks. It just wasn't right. Something was wrong that we should not buy this condo. We couldn't explain it. I mean, life was going well and and work and ministry and relationships, but we listened against this worldly wisdom and we stayed out of the housing market and we felt like fools because it kept increasing in value and increasing in value. That was May or June of 2004. By August, by August, through the discernment of elders of our church, spiritual director, prayer, and friends walking with the Lord, we discerned that God was calling us here to go to Regent College. And in June 2005, a year later, we bought our first house here in this community. And in 2007, the value of that condo in Marin County dropped $250,000 almost overnight. Does Jesus care about where you live and what you do? Absolutely. Does Jesus have a word for you in those decisions? You can count on it. And that is very good news. You are not alone. You don't have to stumble through wondering if God knows you and cares for you. He does. And I've got more good news. If you screw it all up, because we all have, if you're living with the consequences of bad choices and selfish decisions, He will forgive you. His death on the cross, there's nothing he can't forgive. And if you repent, he can and he promises to work all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things for his glory, not necessarily your comfort. I'm sorry. But he can redeem it all. And that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus. I'm going to pray, and then I'll get practical in a minute. Lord, thank you for this overarching good news that you actually are a God who listens and cares and wants what's best for your children. Lord, forgive us for for not listening, for being um, convinced that the other voices are are maybe more important, or even if we don't believe that intellectually, oftentimes in our practice, Father, we confess that we, we're functional atheists, God. So we want to say thank you as a church that you're the kind of God who guides. And we want to say thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the kind of God who forgives and makes new and redeems the bad choices that we've made, the bad choices we may yet make. And we want to pray for your help, Holy Spirit, to bring to mind in the midst of of making decisions the power of God, the all-sufficiency of God. Would you give us the, the ability to wait on the Lord, to wait for a word, and to be vulnerable and to share with people we trust, Lord, our decision-making process. Bless you. Amen. This was a a crazy one. I really thought that this message would be about 20 minutes. (laughs) Um, And I had all this stuff I was going to say. 
and then I realized it could be about three sermons, so I'm not going to do that. This is it. That's kind of the theory, the overarching stuff. I also want to put something in your hand that I, I've, I've handed out before uh, to some of you. You know, of all the things I do in pastoral work, getting to walk with you on decisions is one of the, the most common things and uh, one of the most fruitful things. And so I put together from two different sources an outline of, of a decision-making process, and I quoted my sources on the back. J.A. Packer is one of them, and the other one is a Catholic writer named Albert uh, Hasse, and um, I've shared this with many of you before, and then some of the words are my own fleshing out. The front page is um, three steps in decision-making, and it goes through one, two, three, and I kind of flesh those out for you, and then um, in the middle are six common pitfalls in decision-making, and so you've got a positive and kind of things to watch out for, and I encourage you to take a look at that. I've got two stacks up here, so when service is out, you can just grab one. Um, and if that's a place where you're at and you want to dialogue, this is, this is kind of a primer. Um, but if you want to dialogue about some of this stuff later, I'd be happy to do that. So.